Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to uh, a Sunday with us at Restoration Covenant Church. My name is Ryan, and if you're new, we're really glad you're here. You're also here on a um, kind of an interesting time in the life of our church. Um, we are um, temporarily, for the last <laughs> two years, in the gym. And we're working on moving down that direction, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later on today. Um, but we're also in a conversation. That was weird. That was a weird sound. I didn't like it. Um, we're also in a conversation around a very tricky part of the Bible, and it's the book of Revelation. Now, last week... Um, we, I, I kind of told you, hey, it's not revelations, it's revelation, it's one revelation. And then I proceeded to say revelations, and you all scolded me. So now that we're all behind, we're, we're past that, um, we're going to continue. Um, last week, we did, um, and the week before, um, we did two kind of weeks of background because this book is just crazy. It's, it's literally crazy. And, and some of us have grown up with it in the church, and we are like kind of confused, and we, are, um, we have all this stuff going in our heads, like what does this mean, and what does this mean for us? And, and so that's why we've taken two weeks to do background. Today, we're going to be in a passage that's probably a little bit more familiar to you. And one of the things that you need to know is that we've been asking you to have an open mind. That a lot of us show up in this place, you might have no understanding and no background for this apocalyptic book. <laughs> and some of you may have a lot of church background with it. And so all I'm asking is that you have an open mind. And for some of you, it's created a little bit of cognitive dissonance. Like, is this, is what I was taught 20 years ago right, wrong? What does it mean? And so we've, we've kind of had this, uh, this open conversation mindset. So last Tuesday, we had a kind of a, ch a chat some of you came to. We talked a little bit. We asked questions. We had a little conversation. We've been um, inviting you to submit your questions, and we've gotten a number of them. I'm going sh to share an answer to a couple today that kind of fits with where we're going. But this book, I think, is deeply connected to our apprenticeship to Jesus. Like if we really want to be a community that's learning how to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus said, then we have to take this book really seriously. Like really seriously. And I think this book challenges us as 21st century followers of Jesus. And I'm going to say a bold statement here. More than any other book in the New Testament. And I've avoided it, teaching it for 12 years. And so we need to, I'm just making the point that the last two weeks that we are not going to look at this book as some sort of a code-breaking calendar thing. 
Because if we do that, we're going to totally miss the point. And so we need a first century perspective. This is a highly symbolic letter that's warning the people of Jesus to stay faithful. And so today, let me start in chapter 1. I'm going to read a couple verses, and then we're going to jump in. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So today we're going to look at one of the seven churches. It's kind of an archetype for all the churches. Now, a couple questions that came in. One was about the angels, and the other one was about, are we sure there's just seven churches? Um, let me just background. Let me throw, can we throw the map up? So this is the map of modern-day Turkey. This is kind of that region, Asia Minor, that we talked about. Um, that are the seven churches, and it was the island of Patmos is kind of off the coast of Ephesus, and so what we think, we, <laughs> what smart people think, <laughs> is that the letter came and started in Ephesus and followed that circular route, and Laodicea is the last one, and the letter was performed in all of these churches. And I say performed literally because I believe that the courier of the letter probably had it memorized and was really passionate, and they read the letter, and they performed the letter to the churches. Now, if you read these letters, the, the church in Ephesus, you know, they had some good things going for them. And then when you finally get to Laodicea, Laodicea has nothing good going for them. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, we, we know there's more churches in this. There's a, there's a letter written to the church in Colossae called Colossians. Colossae is right next to Laodicea. We know that up in the top left-hand corner is a port city called Troas that Paul kind of went through to go to Philippi, and we, we kind of hazard to guess that 60 years later there was a church in Troas. So we think this wasn't all the churches, but for some reason, John decided to talk to these seven. And my guess is, is if your little house church was 25 miles outside of Philadelphia, you probably heard of the letter too. Now, what it comes to the angels, were they actual angels? Were they messengers? Were, we don't know. We do know that in apocalyptic literature, that in all apocalyptic literature, whether it was Roman or Jewish or Greek, there was a lot of divine messengers involved. But the question I want to start us asking is this. Do you have any blind spots? I want you to be careful thinking about answering this question in your head. Because if you say no, you're wrong right? I mean, that's what a blind spot is. <laughs> so if you're just like, no, I know everything. I know everything about me. 
I know, <laughs> I know all the things that I'm good at, and everybody knows I'm, I'm just like 100% authentic inside and out. You're not, nor am I. Um, one of the funny things in our house is that with five people in our house, uh, the, f- the refrigerator gets full of a lot of different things and things get moved around. And typically, and I won't uh, name names, but there's one person in our house that thinks there's something in the f- refrigerator and can't find it. And it's right in front of their face. And they're like, it's not in there. I looked. This may not happen to anybody else, but it happens in our house all the time. And we're like, no, it's right there. It's on the top shelf. No, it's not here. And then you walk over and you point at it. And it's that classic line, like if it was a snake, it would have. Right. Or (laughs) as they say in Georgia, if it was a snake, it would have bit your nose off, which is the weirdest that's weird. <laughs> and, and, and the reality is, is that uncovering blind spots in our life are actually really important. If you're operating in a certain way your whole life, and there's, you're, you're operating out of just kind of like everybody sees this in you, but you don't see it, when you are opened up to the blind spot in your life, it actually brings a whole lot of healing to you and other people. Okay? Um, about a year and a half ago, I came face to face with some blind spots in my life. And I was living in such a way that I was literally emotionally shut down as a human being. <laughs> I was not experiencing joy. I was not experiencing sadness. I was just a robot. And I was just doing things and crossing things off my list. And I was just not available to other humans. Like, people in my life that are really important to me, I was just not there. And then I came face to face with this. And it was really hard. And I'm still reminded of it. In fact, there's a part of me right now that's thinking about my current life (laughs) right now, and I feel like that's also happening. Like, I'm just cranking out stuff. Now... A blind spot, by definition, is something that you do not see. And we can go through huge chunks of our lives totally blind to things in our lives, just operating. This is what's happening to this church in Laodicea. And here is what we know about this church in Laodicea, okay? One scholar, a guy named Bill Mounts, wrote this. It is frequently noted that Laodicea prided itself on three things, financial wealth, an extensive textile industry. I mean, who wouldn't pride themselves on that? And a popular eye salve, which was imported around the world. So, I know. Like, when you think of Denver, do you think of, like, any, any of those things? No, probably not. But the point is, is that this, this little town, Laodicea, was, like, really wealthy. They had great clothes. They liked what they looked like. 
And they had this healing kind of balm you would put on eyes, and people would come from all over the world to get it or to buy it. But here's the last thing they were known for. Their water. Their water, um, in, in the words of my friend Griff, was kind of nasty. Their water was nasty. And so I've got a couple readers that are going to come up. And they are going to read you the letter to this little church in Laodicea while I drink out of my juice box. (laughs) I ain't lying. I got my juice box right here. You're first. And then to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. So I advise you to buy gold for me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments for me, so you will not be shamed of your, by your nakedness, and ointment for your eyes, so you'll be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Nice work, guys. The um, background starts to make a little bit more sense, doesn't it? We've got a letter to a church, and it seems like God knows this church. And it was typical of form letter. It's interesting at the beginning of it. Notice at the beginning, it says that Jesus is described as the amen, the faithful and true witness, which was, as we just read, kind of the opposite of the Laodiceans, and the ruler of God's creation, okay? The origin and the beginning of God's creation. And it has this amazing line in it, this letter that says that I'm, I'm, I'm here I'm outside your church, and I'm knocking. I I actually want to come in. I want to be in this. But he's, he's explaining that he's outside. And so this is a real personal letter. Um, and each of the letters, if you read them, are very different in context, then they bring up different things. But for this church, it was like there was this general apathy it was just kind of like, a, like, like Jesus was no longer necessary. And you, you might want to ask yourself, like, how does the church get there? How does a group of people get to a place where that's the case? That Jesus is kind of pushed to the outside, that he's outside knocking and no one's letting him in. And I believe one of the answers, like one of the key answers to this is the line, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. And I think this idea of affluence 
for them was a big blind spot. I mean, it was a big deal. I think they were pretty self-sufficient. And I, I think just looking back on my life, it's those times when I'm pretty self-sufficient and have everything I need that I feel like I'm not desperate enough for God in my life. They were pretty capable. And as a community, God was no longer really needed. And he, he says, you say I'm rich and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. And I just got to say real quick, when we were deciding which one of uh, Trey or Evelyn was going to read, um, they both wanted to read that juicy line. They called it the juicy line. It is. I mean, just imagine the courier shows up at your church. It is, the courier's already gone to the other six churches. And the other six churches have already heard what the courier's going to tell you. Awkward. And the courier shows up and says this line. For them, nothing, there's nothing in this letter that's really good. There's no commendation. They're like, and some of the other letters, it's like, you're doing this pretty good, but not so much here. Like for the Laodiceans, they get nothing good. And then he goes on to say, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And, um, you know, growing up, I was taught that this meant that you either needed to be like really on fire for Jesus, and God loved you that if you were, or if God was totally cool if you were just cold to him. And that's not what this means. I used to think it was just like, you can't just be like indifferent, like blah in the middle. Geographically, there are two things near this city that are really important for us to know. There was a little city called Hierapolis that had hot springs. Anybody dig a hot springs, right? Hot springs of Hierapolis, about six miles away. And then next to Colossae, there was a river that was super cold water. And they were neither hot nor cold. Their water came from the hot spring. And by the time it got to them, it was nasty sulfur, lukewarm. Now, hot water has got really positive qualities. Cold water's got really positive qualities. And one of the things you would do at a banquet, if you were really wealthy, which they were, is you would serve hot water and cold water. The hot water was, you know, sometimes fermented or whatever, and then the cold water was refreshing. The hot water sometimes had, um, like, something put in it that was, like, had to have, like, a healing, you know, like a tea, and the cold water was, you were thirsty. They used lukewarm water at wealthy dinner parties to throw up between courses. Yeah, I got you. That was the juicy part right there. 
the water they got from Hierapolis was not hot anymore. It was lukewarm. And so water that is lukewarm is room temperature. And room temperature water has completely adapted itself to its surroundings. It's taken on the quality of everything else around it. It's no longer helpful for health, and it's no longer refreshing. And so G, the, 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 the letter from Jesus to this church is, not I will spit you out of my mouth, but I, I'm about to. And it's a call to repentance. It's actually an invitation. It's actually, he's explaining their problem, their blind spot, and he's saying, listen, you're, you're living life in such a way. I'm not asking you to do moralistic stuff. I'm asking you to like live a full flourishing life, and you're absolutely missing it. You are swept up into your affluence. You are swept up into um, just like you're capable. You don't need me anymore. He says, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But he's like, here's what I'm telling you. You're actually, it's all an illusion. And even though you sell, uh, I salve, you're blind. And even though you make amazing garments, you're naked. And even though you're really wealthy, you're poor and wretched. And if you were wealthy, think about this. If like you were this church and you're really wealthy and you have status and you have this unending stream of income and someone says to you, you're actually wretched, poor, pitiful, and naked. That would be like the ultimate insult. Now, my guess is they were pretty defensive. I, I, would, I would imagine if I were them, I would be. Like your wealth and your capability are an illusion. And their claim to fame was something called, it was, it was a black fabric, like jet black. You couldn't get this fabric anywhere else. And in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear. It's a total contrast, right? So you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And this idea, okay, is that they have a real blind spot. In verse 19, it says, those, who you, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. That word repent is really just to turn around. Like, change your direction. Change the direction of your life. And, and I know it doesn't sound like this, but this is actually a letter of love. You know that phrase, tough love? We don't like it. <laughs> It's a, it's a real pastoral letter. It's like moving the herd, you know? It's like helping, like, there's danger ahead. I'm going to keep you from danger. That's what it is. And so it's a pastoral shepherd kind of thing, and it's also prophetic. It's like a warning. Like, if you keep going this direction, and it feels harsh, but it's an invitation back to relationship. So here's the thing. Exposing our blind spots in our lives as individuals and corporately is actually where healing starts. 
And I can tell you from my experience the last year and a half, that's where the, really, the real good work and healing has come is realizing this was a blind spot in my life. And then, you know, this verse, this famous verse that we talked about, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Um, I've heard this used a lot of Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Um, But really, he's talking to a community. He's talking to a whole group of people. And I think in some ways, that's what he's... I think this letter has a lot to say to us as a community. This is Jesus being pushed outside of a community of followers of Jesus. And there's an opportunity of change that exists that they can reopen the door and invite the lamb, the, the, you know, the, the image of a lamb, um, in back into their church. And so some of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, are we ready to move away from our own self-sufficiency? Are we, are we the kind of community that's just, we're, we've got it figured out, or are we reliant upon God? And if not, what does that mean? One of the first things that has to happen to us, we have to hear the knock. Now, I want to introduce to you something that we are going to hear about the rest of our time in this book. And that is the city of Babylon. Now, we're going to go through this in a number of weeks, but a lot of times people don't read this whole book together. They read it in small chunks, and we teach it in small chunks. But if you were to read this whole book together, it wouldn't take you very long at all. But there's a, a city that's talked about in this book, and the city is called Babylon. And in Scripture, Babylon is a real place, and it's also an archetype of places. If that makes sense at all. It's kind of this power, it's kind of this force, it's kind of this real place, and yet it's just how human history works. So like I said before, this book is for all times because it is about all time in human history. Scott McKnight is a famous theologian, and he wrote this, Babylon is creeping into the seven churches because Babylon gonna Babylon. Always. And Babylon always has one goal, domination. And always at the, sa- the expense of, the faithful- of faithfulness. So there's just like this power, there's this culture of Babylon. And it's kind of like this idea of being a fish in water. You don't realize your surroundings. And the way of Babylon is almost invisible to the one swimming in it. And I think that's what's happened, not just to Laodicea, but to all the churches. They're swimming in Rome. They're swimming in Rome as Babylon. They're swimming in the just how it is. It's like, how do you live in a world that is anti-God, devoted to wealth and opulence, consistently opposed to the way of Jesus, 
full of itself and intent on being impressive, protected by a mighty military and aiming to become a global superpower. That's Rome. Sound familiar? How do you live in a world that is constantly living off of like internal betrayals and driven by economic exploitation of anyone and everyone, structured in a hierarchy of power and honor and driven by arrogance and ambition? Does this sound familiar at all? Do we live in a world like that? How does one escape Babylon while living in it? See, the seven churches didn't make a clean break. Some of them were a little better at it than others, but it's not a flip the switch thing. It's not like all of a sudden it's like, wait, what's going on around here? And they were just living in it. And he says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. See, all the things they thought about themselves were actually weakness, not strength. So how about us? And you're like, oh, I'm going to leave right now. Uh, I don't want to hear this part. But how about us? We live in a pretty affluent place. I mean, yeah, we can complain about the cost of this and the cost of that. And I think there's a lot of complacency when there's abundance. What if we came to realize that God was actually always speaking? And, and here's the part that's really hard for us. How do we become attuned to God and what he's doing and what he's saying and what he's showing us when we live in such a fast-paced wealthy, digitally distracted world? How do we do it? Richard Bachman wrote this in one of his commentaries. He said, if Christians are to resist the powerful allurements of Babylon, they need an alternative and greater attraction. And you're going to meet that alternative and greater attraction next week when we get into chapter 4. But asking God to speak so that we can hear, so we can hear and see like he wants us to see. And here's the thing. You and I have the benefit of history now. Like we know that it took three, if you do any like cursory read of church history, we know that it took 300 years and in 300 years time, the empire was all Christian and um, it was just kind of like this mix of church and state. And it kind of got ugly. And in some important ways, it actually destroyed the church. And apart from the grace of God, it would have completely destroyed it. And we always look back. Like we were talking about this in our meeting this morning. It's like we always look back, right? And we say, oh, you silly people, Right? <laughs> Like, we look back at the people of Israel and we're like, you silly Israelites, you always screw it up. And then we say, you silly Pharisees, right? When we get into the New Testament, we're like, come on, Pharisees, you don't see it's Jesus. And then we say, silly early church or silly house church at Laodicea. You know, closer to home, um, if you've done any 
you're, if you're an old guy like me and you're into World War II, there's, you know that joke, like after you reach a certain age, you smoke meat and you're into World War II? Like, as, anyway. So in World War II, there was a whole bunch of German churches that got co-opted by the state. And Hitler began to run the German Protestant church. And there were people within the church that said no. And they dissented. And one of them was a famous theologian named Karl Barth. And Karl Barth got a few other guys together and they wrote something called the Barman Declaration. And I would encourage you to read it. It is actually a manifesto against the state church. And then you have guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But let's, let's talk about our church. Let's talk about the evangelical church in America. This should be fun, <laughs> right? There's some good things in church history. There's always good things. And then there's some bad things. So the good things is the evangelical church did a lot, has done a lot of telling people about Jesus. There's this a love of scripture and there's, there's this desire to start new churches. There's a lot of things that are good. But if you've paid attention, <laughs> there's also been a lot of gaining power. There's been a lot of wealth Amass, amassing wealth. There's been all kinds of abuse and scandal. There's been participation in corporate greed. There's been seeking political influence. And then there's been some plotting of military violence. And I don't say this to get you angry, okay? I say this because I think that this letter to the Laodiceans and to all the churches is actually a way for us to open our eyes because the seven churches are not free from the stains of Babylon, nor the churches over the last two millennia of the history of the world, and neither are we. But here's the hope. The hope is that you and I can become discerning faithful, dissident disciples. If we learn from God, John's own description of how Babylon kind of gets in, gets into us and gets into our church, and we can hear for that knock, that's, that's the real question. Will we listen for it? And, and here's the thing. While each of the churches receives kind of a different message reflecting on their own situation, there is this one overarching issue in all the churches is whether or not they will compromise. What will the trajectory look like for them? Will they be a faithful witness to Jesus by refraining from participation? And we're going to get into all how the church could participate in the worship of the empire and worship of the emperor and all the different gods and goddesses. We're going to get into all of that even if refusing to do that meant serious social consequences, serious economic consequences, and actually serious political consequences. Would we be willing to do that? See, the, Laodice the, the Laodicean Christians think and act no differently 
from the rest of the citizenry of Laodicea. That's the image of the water. It's the same. But they were doing really well, they thought. Do we think and act any different in our culture? And maybe it's because we're doing so well. So there's where we're going to leave it. You're like, thanks, Ryan. That was really nice. I felt uplifted. (laughs) This letter is meant to wrestle with. It's not meant for you to look ahead and to see where you See where you make it. It's meant for us as a church to really, really wrestle with. So what we're going to do is we're going to do something together that is an incredible act of rebellion against Babylon. We're going to take communion. And the reason why it's an incredible act of rebellion is all of Babylon, all of Rome, all of any empire is about power, wealth, status, conquering, peace through strength. But we worship a God who became nothing, came to earth as a human being, who everybody thought Jesus would be a conquering hero and rally around and conquer Rome with sword. And he didn't do it that way. The scriptures say he became like a lamb to be slaughtered. We will see imagery all throughout Revelation of a lamb who was slain. And the blood on his robe was not his enemies, it was his own. And we're actually called to be like that. And so when we come to the table, we don't come to the table um, in any other way, but in, in humility, to align our lives and to align our community and our family around the broken body of Jesus and the spilled blood of Jesus. So I'm going to pray and just give us some time to reflect in this prayer and then come when you're ready. You do not have to come to the table. It is open to you, but it is not required of you. But my prayer for us is that we would see this as an act of rebellion, even in the midst of the world we live in. Let me pray. God, this morning we are um, wrestling with a text. A text that um, causes us to, if we're honest, wonder. um, Take a deep look at our own lives how capable we are, how much we have, how much we don't need, how busy, 
how frenetic, how distracted. God, the water we're in, all the ways that we live and how this world operates and sometimes we can just be so blind to it. How we participate in it. And ultimately what you're after is our affection, our worship. And we get a picture of a church that had lost that affection. God, I feel like we are reminded every single time we gather on a Sunday morning to reorder our loves and our longings after you. God, we want to see our blind spots. As painful as that is, and as difficult as that is to face, we need to see them because you have a life of flourishing and beauty ahead of us on the other side. And so, God, we come to the table worshiping Jesus, thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus that broke the power of death and ushered in the kingdom of God that that allows us to live flourishing, fully hopeful, beautiful lives that you intended us to live. And so we come to the table as a remembrance of the night that you were betrayed, you passed the bread to your disciples and you broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. I'm not going to win. I'm not going to conquer by breaking other bodies. I'm breaking my own. And I'm not going to win by spilling other people's blood. I'm going to willingly Take this for all of humanity. And we want to align our lives and our hearts and our, and our community around that, around this table. We pray these things in your name. Amen.